Every time we sing that song, I almost feel guilty giving a sermon because I'm like, what more do you say? I mean, that's it. That's the story. Um, I need to begin with an apology. Last week, I gave you an encouragement. This week, I need to give you an apology. Um, during the week, as you probably know, we had 14,000 pounds of mulch delivered to our church in 2,000-pound bags. We had no idea that this way it was going to be delivered, and we stared at it thinking, now what? You know, what are we going to do with this? And so we looked at getting a forklift. We looked at doing some stuff. And, and I called Lance because he's the man with all the equipment. And I said, what do you think? He says, I think we can get some people together to do it. And I said, all right, we'll try. So we sent out a message. And my apology is because I was driving to the church that morning thinking, gosh, I hope some people show up because this is going to take forever. I pulled into the parking lot and it was full. I think there were 60 people here, and we unloaded 14,000 pounds of mulch in less than 45 minutes. So I'm so sorry that I was mistaken. It's incredible. You are an amazing church. So how many of you remember what the Magic 8-Ball is? All right. Well, there's a few of you. Okay, for those of you who don't know, it's an old toy that obviously was shaped and like to look like an 8-Ball, right? And the way this would work is that you would uh, ask it a question, then shake it up, and it would give you the answer you were longing for, right? And I was thinking about this the other day, and I thought, gosh, wouldn't that be a great concept for determining God's will, you know, just like a magic eight ball? So if we were to use it, you know, someone might say, you know, should I marry Lizzie Jane? So we ask the magic eight ball, what does it say? Outlook, not so good. Okay. (laughs) That's actually helpful. Yeah, that's good. Um, Next question, should I take this new job? Magic 8-Ball said, my sources say no. Again, helpful, right? What about should I buy that new BMW that I've always wanted? Ask again later. Like for the rest of your life, ask again later. I mean, it'd be really nice if it were that easy to discern God's will, but we all know that's not how it works. But in our passage this morning, in Paul's prayer, he asks that they may know the will of God with all wisdom and understanding. So apparently, we can know God's will. But, but here's where I feel like there's a, a difference from our perspective and what we're seeing in Scripture Because I think we often want to know God's will in order to avoid difficulty or struggle, right? I don't want to be in a bad marriage, and I don't want to be in a bad job. I want to avoid these things, but here's the reality. God's will can be realized in the midst of a bad marriage. God's will can be experienced right there in the midst of a bad job. You see, I think so often, we get worried about what the situation is that we are trying to figure out some answers to, but we need to understand that God is not limited by our circumstances. And when we're talking about God's will, it has less to do with what is happening around us and everything to do with what is happening within us. And I believe you're going to see that unfold in Paul's prayer this morning. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, we know that you work all things together. That's the good, that's the bad, it's the ugly. You work them all together for the good of those who love you, 
those who are called according to your purpose, that, that you are not limited by the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in, but that you can, you can enact your will through us in any situation because it only matters as to what's going on within us. So Lord, help us to see that. Re- recalibrate our hearts and our minds this morning as we look at the truth of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And a very uh, familiar prayer, one of my all-time favorites. I'm sure you love this one as well. But let's unpack it together. Verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'm going to pause here after this just one verse because I think we, there's something very curious about how Paul begins this prayer. But it's really impossible to see unless you kind of understand the context within which this was written. Because the more you read Paul's letter to the Colossians, the more clear it becomes that he's really concerned about false teachers who have infiltrated the church. He warns the Colossians not to be deluded with persuasive arguments. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See, apparently these false teachers were were proclaiming truths that went beyond the teaching of Jesus Christ, claiming to have this special revelation, giving them exclusive access to spiritual truth. They ignored the responsibility of church leaders and and went around them in order to have influence among church members. Historically, we know who these people were. They ascribe to a philosophy known as Gnosticism. Now, you can study it all you want to, and no matter how much you do, it is confusing, right? It is complicated, and I think they wanted it that way. Because they believed that they had a superior knowledge that that led them to being the only ones who could fully understand. They saw themselves as, as the spiritual elite, receiving special revelation from God. In fact, they wrote their own gospel accounts. The gospel of Thomas is the Gnostic gospel. The gospel of Peter. Even the gospel of Judas. But their accounts did not line up with what we see in the truth of Scripture. They presented Jesus as more of a a sage of signs and wonders than a Savior who came to forgive our sins. One who appeared in flesh and blood, but it was actually more like a phantom. Because he really didn't literally die on a cross, it just looked like he did. It was this strange mixture of of biblical truth and spiritual mysticism. It was this special knowledge for the spiritual elite. Now, knowing that, is it not curious that Paul prays for the Colossian Christians to be filled with knowledge. Doesn't that kind of play into his concern of these false teachers? 
But what's interesting is when you look at the passage, the word he uses for knowledge is not the typical Greek word gnosis from which we get the word Gnosticism. He uses the word epinosis or full or complete knowledge. So, so the prayer is that we may understand the full, the complete knowledge of God's will with all wisdom and understanding. See, this is not some new revelation. This is the spirit-filled understanding of what's already been revealed. It's the understanding of God's will revealed to us through God's word along with the wisdom of knowing how to to take that truth and apply it to our daily lives. It's the renewing of our mind. It's what Paul has in mind when he wrote to the Romans, and he said, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Which means this is not just information that we are supposed to store in our head. This is information, this is truth that has the power to transform how we live. And Paul will begin to express that as he continues in his prayer. So look with me in verse 10. So that, here's the reason, that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. What we know is always revealed in how we live. Don't miss that. What we know is always revealed in how we live. And Paul says we're to live, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the word he uses here for worthy literally means of equal weight. And so what he's telling us here is that to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is a, is a life that looks like Jesus. The one who, according to Matthew 10, 45, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is telling us that this is a life that is filled with self-sacrificing love. Instead of trying to impress people with your superior knowledge, you serve people with a humble heart. That's why Jesus said to his disciples after washing their feet in John chapter 13, verse 14, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I mentioned this this week um, at a funeral, but we had a beautiful picture of this right here in our church when um, Marcy Hardy and um, Mary Lewis would go by and visit Melinda Hill, and they'd wash her feet, and they would give her a massage in hopes of extending comfort. That tells me They know Jesus. We walk in a manner worthy of the Lord when we live a life that looks like Jesus. A life that is pleasing to the Lord in all respects. And this is not pleasing in the sense of earning God's favor because something that is pleasing to the Lord is always 
always a delight to us. How do we know that? Because his desire is for our highest good. And so walking in the manner worthy of the Lord in a way that is pleasing to him is is a heart that beats with the rhythm of God's will because it is your delight. And Paul continues by, by giving four observable signs. These are things that we can see in our life if these truths are being lived out as he's praying. But I want you to know right up front that this is not something that we do for God. This is a testimony of what God does in us. It is the evidence of growing in the knowledge of his will. Let's look at them together. First of all, we walk in a manner of God's will. It says that we will bear fruit in every good work. Which, again, you hear that. Now, wait a second. That sounds a lot like doing something for God, right? Isn't that what good works are? Well, not according to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Here it is. Which God prepared beforehand so that you can walk in them. So good works are not what we do for God. Good works are what God has done for us beforehand so that we can walk in them. You see, knowing God's will as it is revealed in God's word, empowered by God's spirit, leads us to bear fruit in every good work that he prepares beforehand so that we can walk in them. And I believe all these kind of build on each other because the more we bear good fruit, we grow in the knowledge of God. It's the idea of learning by serving, seeing divine encounters, places where God is at work, and then entering into that place, being a part of the way his hands and feet are impacting the world around us. We grow in our understanding of God's heart when we are walking in God's ways. It's hands-on learning, not an academic exercise. What made me think of this idea recently, uh, or not too long ago, I was trying to learn how to tie different knots. I'm just curious about those things. And so I would read the descriptions, and I would try to follow the diagrams, arrows here, arrows. I'm like, I have no idea. It didn't make sense to me until I had a, a rope in my hand, and I could just work it out with practice. Even to the point, if you were to ask me, well, how do you tie that knot? I've got, I have no, you're just going to have to watch me. I can't tell you. It just, I just have to do it. Well, I think it's the same thing in our Christian life. We learn by serving and following God's lead, going beyond what's in our head and living it out with our hands, with a humble heart, Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with God's power according to his glorious might. And again, these are not things that you're doing for God. I hope you see very clearly as they are stacked upon each other that these are all predicated on the reality that this is what God is doing through us. In fact, I think it has less to do with our gifts and abilities and more to do with our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul saying, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness. So the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
You see, I'm convinced that some of the most fruitful years of my ministry were born out of my brokenness. And it wasn't easy. In fact, it was humiliating for me to stand up here and tell you that as your pastor, I was struggling with mental illness. I was plagued with panic and anxiety. I mean, I'm a pastor. Pastors aren't supposed to do things. They're supposed to have it all together. And yet, I was falling apart. But by God's grace, I began to see that I was not walking in God's will. Because it wasn't God's will for me to carry the burdens of other people as if they were my own because they compounded each other and eventually crushed me. I learned that it was not God's will for me to change people's lives with my teaching. I learned that it was not God's will for me to offer unique and interesting insights that impressed you and impacted you. It was not God's will for me to be the next Tim Keller or Matt Chandler. I was called to love and serve you. And I'm still learning. I'm learning to walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand, but learning through serving, being strengthened by his power, even in the midst of my weakness, finding refuge in my fear, assurance in my doubt, confidence in my calling. My endurance is ultimately based on my dependence upon the Lord. That's the truth. And I think that's what Paul's building to here. He even says, attaining all steadfastness and patience. We need endurance, otherwise we become despondent, depressed, discouraged. We need patience, otherwise we become angry, vengeful, judgmental. And we all know one thing the world doesn't need is more angry Christians. We need people who Reveal the truth, not just by what they say, but more importantly, how they live. Yes, we absolutely need to proclaim the truths of the gospel, but they only connect with people when they can see those truths being lived out. Look at how he continues at the end of verse 11. Joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So on one hand, he calls us to endurance, to to be steadfast, but, but not with drudgery, okay? This is not just plodding along. I love what Richard Foster says. He says, joy, not grit, is the hallmark of holy obedience, We need to be lighthearted in what we do to avoid taking ourselves too seriously. It is a cheerful revolt against selfish pride. You see, I think this is one of the most appealing characteristics of the portrayal of Jesus in the series, The Chosen. How many of y'all have seen The Chosen? Man, if you haven't, you need to look it up. It is worth every bit of your time. There's been two seasons. Third one's coming out sometime this fall, I hear. 
But this is what I love about the chosen, is the way they portray Jesus, because he, he laughs and he plays with the kids. And then he'll turn around and kind of tease and kid around with his disciples. I mean, his personality has this winsome joy that is just incredibly inviting. Just recently, they did a documentary by inviting people who weren't Christian, who would never have watched this show on their own initiative, but they said, hey, we're going to fly you here, treat you special. Will you be willing to watch this series and just kind of see what, tell us what you think? They said, sure, they did. And these were people who would have never watched it on their own who were amazed. And they said things like, I never saw Jesus that way before. I was really drawn to who he is. If that's what that's like, I'd like to learn more. It's a powerful thing when you can see the truth being lived out winsomely with joy and contentment. See, that should be our default demeanor. Because no matter how bad things get, we should have a joy-filled hope that cannot be destroyed. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness. We have been adopted into the family of God. The cross has qualified us for an indestructible eternal inheritance. And there is nothing that can take that away. 1 Peter 2.9 says, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our joy should ultimately be found in the assurance of what Jesus has accomplished that we have been rescued, that his death rescued us from the power of sin's control, that his victory over sin and death has destroyed the power of evil and will one day bring it to completion. We have joy because we have been redeemed. As we were reminded this morning, we have joy because we are being redeemed. We have joy because we will be redeemed. These are eternally secure promises of God. We have joy because like Jesus, our hope is fixed on something future. That's what it says in Hebrews 12 too. For the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And listen to me, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, that very same joy has been set before us. We can see it. It's a truth. Look, if our hope is in some future course correction in our country through some idea of godly leadership, if our peace and our personal life is based on some sense of control, if we're trying to protect ourselves and the people we love from things like pandemics or evil people or emotional struggle and difficulty, if that's what we're, trying to, if that's what we're striving for, if that's our hope, we're in trouble, people. Because that's the hope of heaven, not the hope of this earth. We joyously give thanks because what Christ did has divinely determined what will be. We have hope in the present because of a future promise. See, you've probably heard this before, but it's kind of that already not yet reality because Christ is already with us. The Spirit already empowers us. His truth already guides us. His victory has already been won. But we are not yet at the place where God makes all things new. But he will.
And that's the hope set before us. So as we close this morning, I want us to kind of play out some of the truths of this prayer and consider how it would look in our daily lives. Because I want you to know that, that the heart of this prayer is God's desire for us to flourish in our faith. Did you hear that? That's the heart of this prayer, is for his people to flourish in their faith. And if we put our hope in him, if we put our trust in him, that's what it will be. Which doesn't mean we won't have difficulty in hardship, but we have some answers and truth to hang on to in the midst of it. It's a hope that is living and active. Okay, just like we see in the truth of God's word. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I think this is important because sometimes I think we see the Bible as a divinely ordained textbook. Okay, has interesting information in it, but not all that helpful if that's all it is. And if that's all it is, then we'll start looking for new insights somewhere beyond it. Some new revelation that we can't find in it. Because when it's left to us to decipher and discern, we are going to be frustrated. That's because the truth of God can only come alive by the Spirit of God. There is no other way. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because... They are spiritually appraised. So listen to me here. When we read the truth of God, based on what this passage says, we need to expect that truth to come alive in our life. If it is living and active, if the Spirit of God is enlightening our eyes to see that truth, giving us the wisdom and understanding of how to apply it in our lives, we should expect it to come alive. And it's more than knowing God's truth. It's being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Understanding how to apply that truth to our daily lives. Seeing, seeing those good works that he prepared beforehand so that we can walk in. How many of you go through your day looking for them? Because you're expecting them. Because he promised he said he would do them. So let me encourage you to do a little exercise. I made this up, but we'll give it a try. I'm calling it reverse journaling. Okay, because I love to journal. I love to read scripture, reflect on what it says, and then journal what I'm learning. Okay, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Go through the same exercise. Read scripture. Linger in the presence of God without being in a hurry to leave. Reflect on his word and those truths that come out of that. Then set your journal down. Come back later in the day. And then you journal about how you saw God make those truths come alive in your daily life. Uh, write the ways that you saw him preparing good works that you were willing to walk in. Journal those thoughts at the end of the day as evidence of the truth that has come alive in your life. Which means you may have to embrace the awkward. Okay? 
It means you may have to have a conversation with a stranger while you're standing in line. It may mean you have to walk across your fence and have a conversation with your neighbor. And I know that strikes fear of God in introverts like me. Right, Monica? Amen? Yeah, I hear you. But, but here's the key, and don't miss this. God's work in us is never intended to end with us. God's work in us is never intended to end with us. It's always connected to someone else. See, my knowing God's will cannot be divorced from my relationships with you where that is going to be lived out on a daily basis. But here's the key. You have to look expectantly for God to reveal his will to you. Don't just read your Bible, fulfill your duty, and then go about your day. If that's leading you to frustrating emptiness, I'm not surprised. Take the truth in, expecting to live the truth out. Remember, this is hands-on learning. Relying on his spirit to make that truth come alive in your life. Finding your ultimate strength in your complete dependence. See, I think sometimes the only reason people look for a new revelation is because they're not living out the one they've already been given. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work which he prepared beforehand so that you can walk in him. So listen to how God speaks into your life. Look for the ways in which he is leading you. And always make sure it lines up with God's word. Personally, I think there's too much attention given today in our church culture where it talks about this word from the Lord that you've received, the special word that you've been given. Because I think what it does is it individualizes our Christian walk to the expense of community. God revealed his word for us, not just for me. So anything that he reveals to me is going to have an impact on you because he built us to live life together in community. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, strengthened by his spirit, enduring joyfully because of our future hope. And none of this, okay, I'm going to say it again, none of this is what we do for God. So don't go making your list. This is what God does in us. So open your ears. Open your eyes and see what he does. Peter reminds us God has given us all we need. So we don't need something new. He says in 1 Peter, or excuse me, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You have everything you need. Keep looking to Jesus. Look into the truth of his word. Expect it to come alive in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you didn't give us a dead letter. Words that are meaningless, that have no power, but they are living and active. And that they contain your will for our lives, lived out, not just individually, but in community. 
You, you change the word, world through your people collectively. So Lord, may we take this to heart and as we enter into and encounter your word this week in particular, I do pray that we would be faithful to read, to reflect, to consider truths that would apply to our lives and then see how that is lived out. Even looking for the good works that you prepare beforehand so that when they happen, we would be willing to walk in them. And then we would then come back and journal or even have a conversation sharing the ways in which we have seen you at work in our lives, revealing your will so that we grow in your, the knowledge of who you are, how you're at work in the world, to the praise and glory of your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand together. First, I want to say thank you uh, for extending me to grace to be able to share my weaknesses. Because I, I know there are churches that exist in this world where that pastor wouldn't have a job the next day. But you have embraced, and I'm grateful. And I want you to know that this is one of those sermons that I hope was helpful for you, but I wrote it for me. <laughs> because I need to be more expectant. I need to be more attentive to the ways in which God is at work, preparing things ahead of time so that I can walk in them. I need to anticipate his victory, that the battle belongs to the Lord, and I belong to him. And I need to rest in those truths. And I pray that that comes alive for you as well. And thank you for letting a preach, me preach a sermon to myself this morning. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this sweet family, for their grace and love and acceptance. Thank you that we share life together, that we have a living and active truth, a living and active spirit, a living and active Savior, and an eternally existing sovereign God. And Lord, we look forward to the hope of experiencing the fullness of what you have prepared ahead of time in heaven that we can spend eternity and would never exhaust all the beauty and all the goodness of what you've prepared. So, Lord, thank you. And until then, may we live in the assurance of your presence, empowered by your spirit, guided by your word, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.